a Podcast One production. This episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was produced in partnership with GIO. Siobhan Caulfield with you. Another tough day for aviation in Australia with the demise of Tiger Air and news now official, Virgin Australia has gone into voluntary administration. The carrier earlier asked the government for $1.4 billion in financial help, but that was rejected. The airline believed to have up to $5 billion in debt with its collapse putting around 16,000 jobs in jeopardy. If we've learned anything from 2020. It's that we need to be prepared. We weren't prepared for a pandemic. And because of that, we're all learning how much change we're prepared to absorb. One of those big changes is that we're flying around a whole lot less than we were just six months ago. Unprecedented. That word gets used a lot. And there's no question we're in turbulent skies here. We can never know what tomorrow will bring, but we can prepare. I'm Mark Pesci, and on this episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future, we're looking at the future of air travel. Can we fly without spreading another wave of the pandemic? What will it be like to fly when we can fly again? And will we be able to afford it? Will it ever be like the old days, you know, the beginning of 2020? If you've listened to the next billion seconds much, you've likely heard from Dr. Genevieve Bell. She's a close friend, a generous guest, and a frequent flyer. Or she used to be. It's been 225 days since I last used my passport, but it's still in my backpack, just in case. It's 20 years I've had a job that required me to travel and travel all over the world. 20 years of airports and aeroplanes and movies and bad food and looking for electricity in strange places. And yet, I miss that. I miss the capacity to leave, to get to be somewhere else, go somewhere else, see something else. And the idea of how long it might be till that happens again is daunting. Like Genevieve, I've been a frequent flyer for 20 years or more. In Los Angeles, I lived a 15-minute drive away from the airport. Same thing here in Sydney. Easy access to the airport is important to me because I fly so much, or rather, flew so much. Before the pandemic, no one really gave it a second thought. You came and went as you pleased. But by April of 2020, if you deplaned anywhere in Australia, you were almost guaranteed to be escorted into a locked hotel room for two weeks of medical quarantine. Because something we had been warned about finally happened. Air travel greatly accelerated the spread of the pandemic. Now, the Spanish flu pandemic, which is the last one on a scale similar to the COVID-19 pandemic, that took a full year to make its way around the world. As near as we can tell, COVID-19 made it around the world in just days to Europe and America and Australia. It wasn't long until international travelers arriving in Australia were asked 
first to self-quarantine for 14 days, and then, when that proved ineffective at slowing the rate of infections, they were forced into a mandatory 14-day quarantine. It has made international air travel too much of a burden for almost anything other than emergency situations or repatriation. So Genevieve's passport stays in her backpack unused and mine sits at home waiting for who knows how long. Actually, we do know how long. As long as it takes to get a vaccine into 20 million or so Australian arms. And that's looking promising. As of early September 2020, the publication Nature reports that there were 321 candidate vaccines in development and with five already undergoing large-scale trials. We'll have something at some point, but... And here's the thing I need to be super careful about, because what I'm going to say is based on history, not on the current pandemic. And we need to be very careful here. But historically, the first generation of a vaccine is only rarely highly effective. Yes, it's better than nothing. Far better than nothing. And let me make that clear. A vaccine is good. It's unlikely to be perfect in its first incarnation. Now, the World Health Organization has recognized that, and it set a threshold of 50% effectiveness for any new COVID-19 vaccine. It's got to be good enough in about half the people who get it. Which, yeah, okay, it doesn't sound very good to us because we're used to vaccines that are highly effective in perhaps 90% of the people who are given that vaccine. But those vaccines, they're generally not first-generation vaccines. They're third or fourth or fifth generation. They've been trialed on millions of people and they've been improved. So the first vaccine we get, though it will be a godsend, most likely won't be as effective as we want it to be and as we need it to be if we want things to go back to normal, back to a world where we could fly without a thought. Because until we can guarantee that international flight isn't going to make the pandemic worse, we won't see very much of it. It'll be too risky. Okay, so Given that, how do we de-risk flying? Well, it will definitely start with a jab of vaccine. A few years back, I flew to Rwanda to do some work with the World Bank. And before I left Sydney, I got a full round of vaccinations, including, very significantly, a vaccination for yellow fever. And I was given a vaccine passport to indicate that I had been vaccinated. That passport was examined when I got to Rwanda. Because if I hadn't had that vaccine, they would have refused me entry to the country. I would have been a potential vector of infection for a very nasty illness. And we will very likely see exactly the same thing with COVID-19. You will need to prove your vaccination status before you fly. And that's probably going to be true for flying interstate, not just internationally. Because with a less than 100% effective vaccine, we will still see small outbreaks. And the states, they'll want to do everything they can to minimize that. Requiring visitors to be vaccinated will be part of that strategy. Now, within Australia, a vaccination that could well be good enough. International travel gets a little bit more complicated, if only because it's difficult for one country to have a good read 
on the infection rates within another country. So it's risky to let someone wander freely after deplaning from an international flight. And so how do we de-risk that? Well, first step is probably with rapid COVID-19 tests. And at the end of August in 2020, Abbott Labs announced it had received emergency authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for its 15-minute COVID-19 test. It's known as the Binax Now COVID-19 Ag Card. It looks a lot like a credit card, and it gives results in 15 minutes. Now, sadly, there is no getting away from the nasal swab tickling the back of your brain. That's still necessary for this test. So it has to be administered by a trained medical professional, but it's safe and reliable and quick. It's expected to cost around $5. So it's easy to imagine a passenger arriving at the airport going through an extra step during the security screening process. A biosecurity screening process. You get swabbed, you go on your way, 15 minutes later you get your results on your smartphone, and that means you're cleared to depart. And we have to assume that hours later, when you land in another country, they're going to be equally cautious. So as you go through immigration there, there will be another biosecurity check, another brain-tickling swab, and another 15-minute wait while you gather your luggage and pass through customs, and then, if you're clear, you'll be able to go on your way. And that, I suspect, is the shape of the future of travel for the next few years. A version that may not be as comfortable as it was at the start of 2020, but makes everyone involved breathe a lot easier. Now, eventually, vaccines will become so effective, we won't need to do this. We'll trust herd immunity to nip any outbreaks in the bud. But until then, we're going to have to do lots of testing, lots of times, so the travelers don't spread the virus around the world again. In a moment, we'll take a look at what this means for the business of air travel and ask whether, once flights resume, we'll even be able to afford to fly. Welcome back to the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future, where we're looking at the risks of air travel in a world where biosecurity has become job number one for governments and where airlines still have a role to play. But, well, let's start with this. Are as many of us going to be flying? We put that question to Ron Barch. He's got half a century of experience as a pilot, a lawyer, former head of safety for Qantas, director of Regional Express Airlines and author of The Corona Dilemma. Ron understands the risks of flight, and he understands the airline business. What he forecasts as the future doesn't look much like anything we've known. Never in the history of the airline sector has there ever been a, such a dramatic decrease in the amount of air travel. This is quite unprecedented. The first airlines, Qantas, have their 100th anniversary this year, and never before has there been anything like this. The closure of international borders is quite unprecedented. We've seen closure of airspace with volcanoes and uh, sometimes with military zones and civilian unrest, but never on a worldwide basis. 
that international air travel has decreased by 99%. So given international air travel decreased by 99% because of the pandemic, what does that portend for the 300 or so international carriers? It's quite obvious that of all the over 300 airlines that exist today or international airlines that exist today, uh, the latest predictions and their own predictions is that half of them won't survive. And uh, whereas some of the uh, government-run airlines obviously will, but those that have to have a return on profit for their shareholders, they just can't survive when there's zero cash flow and zero income. So the expenses, airlines are incredibly capital intensive and they also require a lot of training of staff, pilots, ground crew, everything there. And if you haven't got them readily available to ramp up as and when the demand returns, then you you can't run a profitable airline. So even when they start incrementally opening the borders again, that doesn't mean that the airlines will return to profitability. This is an important thing to note. As we get all of our biosecurity issues sorted and international travel reaches risk levels that nations are prepared to tolerate, that doesn't mean the airlines come back to 100%, not immediately. Now, fortunately, that's not the only story. Australia, as a continent-sized nation with a highly concentrated population, is connected together via air travel, and that looks a lot more promising. Domestic travel in Australia is a very, very big business. Qantas and Virgin Australia have derived a large percentage, if not the majority, of their profits from the domestic market. And it's interesting to note the city pair of Sydney and Melbourne is the second busiest city pair in the world. And I think uh, Sydney, Brisbane might be within the top dozen. So we've got an incredible large market, very concentrated on the eastern seaboard. So the prospects of running successful and profitable domestic operations are very real, particularly for Australia. And if uh, we continue along the path, perhaps, of looking at elimination or at least uh, reducing to very low manageable levels, then the domestic market will return. But it won't be the domestic market that we saw in 2019 going into the pandemic. There's no magic wand here to return air travel to the pre-COVID world. That's not just because of biosecurity. It's also because the lockdowns have gone on for so long that the way we do business has permanently changed. What you'll see as being the big difference or big uh, variance is that there will be two types of people that will be travelling. First, there will be those people that have to travel, perhaps for seeing people that are, you know, sick or maybe businesses that they have to have a meeting there. But as to what means have to travel in the future is going to be different from what it meant in 2019. I think what's happened is that being forced to self-isolate and being forced to use Zoom and Teams and all our different online video conferencing, that has shown people that it is very real that business can be conducted over the internet. And with that happening, The real challenge for a lot of the airlines and domestic airlines included is when they start up, it's not going to be competition from other airlines, but it's going to be competition from technology such as Skype, such as Zoom and that, which allows people to do business. Businesses are going to come out of this, all businesses, 
very, very hard and, and they're going to find it very difficult to even survive. So they're going to be looking at cost cutting as being one of the major ways, major ways in which they're going to stay afloat and, and survive. If, like me, you have been doing more video meetings than you imagined possible, you might not be happy to hear that this looks to be a permanent change in how we do business. But here's the thing. We're also in a COVID recession, and businesses everywhere will be looking to cut costs. I think we'll probably see the end of first-class travel, quite frankly, particularly in the international uh, arena. But domestically, I think that... Um, Companies will simply not be able to afford the luxury of all the, um, you know, golden wing lounges and the old corporate lounges and being picked up by BMWs or whatever. That, that's not going to happen in the future because companies are going to be far, far more frugal. You go back to the, uh, my parents grew up in the Great Depression and that changed the way that they put uh, value on things and the cost of things. And that, and that changed a generation but you just imagine when people are coming out of this, they're going to be happy to have a job as it was uh, during the Great Depression. So companies are just going to be so scrutinising their budgets and they're not going to allow the luxury of travel, which is discretionary. Business travel as we've known it and business class travel, that's not going to look the same as it did before the pandemic. There will be less demand and a lot less profit in it for the airlines because about half the profit from any flight comes from business class passengers, which means air travel as a business looks very different. And that's also going to be true for the economy traveler. So the other part of the equation as to the other traveling is the visiting friends and relative market or what we call in the industry, the VFR market. So people wanting to also travel within Australia and, and that's going to be a huge thing. We might get some bubbles opening internationally across the Tasman with New Zealand, most probably some of the Pacific Islands as well. But I don't think we'll see anything beyond that by at least the end of 2021. I think it is going to be a completely reformed industry when it comes out of this. Uh, and the next normal is going to look so very different. One of the things that you uh, should consider is that with international travel, there is so much work involved in setting up networks and getting the networks operating efficiently. That's how airlines make money through efficient operations. With the incredible cost of aircraft and running airlines, you have to get maximum utilisation. Now, you know the disruption that we've seen when we have a volcano erupt in Indonesia or when in Iceland. And, and that causes airlines, and I know this from personal experience working with an airline, that it causes absolute disruption across the whole network. So if you had a flight coming in from Singapore and it was uh, cancelled due to the fact that uh, a border's cancelled uh, or closed because of COVID, and that's supposed to meet up with a flight going across the Pacific to the uh, West Coast, then that will throw the whole airlines in disarray. The deeper we look, the messier it gets. We built a global air travel network that was basically wholly interdependent on each part doing what it was supposed to do when it was supposed to do it. And if we start cutting away at those parts, the whole network, it just collapses fairly quickly. This tells us something very important. 
In the pursuit of cheap airfares, the networks needed to operate efficiently, which led to these interdependencies, which created a network that is not proving very resilient. And that is not a new story. You can do something cheap or you can do something well. It is difficult to deliver on both of those together. So the air travel network has suffered a huge loss in usage, which in turn has created a huge loss in capacity, an upward spiral of costs, and a downward spiral of profits. And where does that stop? What I think is going to happen is that those airlines that do survive, and uh, a lot of them will probably be government-owned airlines, like the Middle Eastern carriers, perhaps some of the governments will step in. I know the Australian government has said that it won't do it, but it may have no choice. It may have to go back to the era before rationalisation happened in the 80s when BOAC and British Airways, they were all government-owned, Qantas was government-owned in Air New Zealand. It may go back to that stage where governments have to, whether they like it or not, resubsidise airlines. And otherwise, the cost of air travel is just going to be absolutely phenomenal that it will not be a profitable sector in itself unless they have those airfares that can return a profit on their operations. We're all quite used to cheap and easy air travel. Those days may be well and truly over. If you have a look at what happened in aviation in the last two decades, one of the most significant developments was the advent in the proliferation of low-cost carriers, so much so that they now represent, or pre-COVID, represented something like 50% of all international civil travel was uh, low-cost carriers. So you think about what low-cost carriers mean. The only way they survive is by throwing as many people into that aircraft as can be possible. Now, are there going to be restrictions coming out of this in terms of what the maximum seating arrangement's going to be? If so, that completely destroys the whole low-cost carrier model. So what does that mean? It means that if 55% of the existing market now is not going to be viable and the others are going to be so expensive that they're going to have to be government subsidised just to allow them to be able to continue. Wow, that's a, like a market that we've never seen. I remember my first flight. I was 11 and flew a few hundred miles from my home in New England to see relatives in Washington, D.C. Now, that was before the market in the USA had been deregulated, so my parents paid a lot for that ticket. Flying was not something people did very much, even in the 1970s, because it cost so much. So it looks like this one corner of the world, where air travel was just a thing we assumed would always be available and cheap, that looks like it may be gone forever, at least as we've known it. But then, that's not necessarily all bad. Those kinds of changes also create opportunities. I think there's two completely separate markets, domestic and international. Domestic, I don't think the form of it will actually change so much. But you think about international. If they're going to be struggling to be able to put so many passengers in an aircraft, what about having half the aircraft and they used to have these combi-type aircraft, half is freight and half is passenger. So the freight may be subsidising the passengers. So it didn't happen like that before the, the pandemic because you want to get more and more people, and that's what it was. The in, uh, international travel was 
you know, exponential in terms of the markets in Asia and all that there. But if we use perhaps freight as being the basis to subsidise passenger operations, because freight is still important and freight doesn't have a lot of the problems that passengers, freight doesn't usually complain. And, and that's the whole point, that if you can have a reduced, perhaps a reduced amount, which the authorities may dictate uh, in terms of passengers, then if you've got three quarters, half or three quarters of the aircraft being paid for and you're already making a profit on that, then that can subsidise passengers. Look at Australia Post. It's seen a 100% increase in the number of package deliveries since the pandemic began. When people can't go to the shops, they buy online, both nationally and internationally. And all those parcels have to cross the country or enter the country. And a lot of that will do so in the cargo hold of an aircraft. If there are restrictions on the number of passengers and the spacing of passengers, that really throws out the low-cost model So how do you get the equivalent of a return on your investment? So DHL might start carrying passengers. It may be owing the cargo airlines that survive. And this is the unexpected bit, that we might see a future where DHL or Federal Express or UPS might end up carrying passengers? Could it be that we'll see a merger between a cargo carrier and a passenger carrier? Would DHL buy Lufthansa or Amazon purchase United? And might we see the Australian government arrange a marriage between Australia Post and Qantas? That's the future. An aircraft that can be reconfigured quickly and inexpensively to carry the right mixture of passengers and cargo to guarantee that the airlines can continue earning enough on each flight that they can afford to fly the next one. And about that, it's not clear that Boeing or Airbus, those are the two big manufacturers of aircraft, it's not clear that they will need to be making many more aircraft in the short term. There's probably plenty for the amount of air travel that will be happening over the next few years. And by the time air travel begins to grow again, we might be seeing entirely new kinds of aircraft. Recently, we saw the first flight of the Celera 500L. It's very futuristic. It's got a silvered skin. It's shaped a lot like a bullet. It carries six passengers, but it uses only one-eighth of the fuel of conventional aircraft. That's a revolution right there, and it may portend a time when there are much more highly efficient passenger aircraft, smaller but flying more routes. The way forward for air travel may look as revolutionary as anything we've seen since the first passenger jets 60 years ago. And then, perhaps, my friend Genevieve Bell can take her backpack to the airport, present her passport, board a shiny new aircraft and fly away. That's the fourth chapter in our user's guide to the future. In our next episode, we'll take a look at theft. In a world where everything knows where it is, can anything ever really be stolen? That's the next chapter in our user's guide to the future. All this talk about air travel and biosecurity and the future of airlines, all of it probably raised some questions. And if so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com or leave us a message on LinkedIn. We'll do our best to answer them. 
Big thanks to Genevieve Bell and Ron Barch for coming on to our show. The next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia in partnership with GIO. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search the next Billion Seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listening.